the latest in agricultural media, and some smart conversation. This is the Ag Communicators Network podcast, and here's your host, Kelsey Litchfield. Welcome to the 10th episode of the AgCom Network podcast. I'm Kelsey Litchfield, and I am so excited you guys get to listen in to our conversation today. Our guest is Steve Warblow, who is very well known. You might know him as a freelance photographer and writer. Today, Steve is going to bring us his knowledge and perspective of working internationally. In this episode, Steve talks about how he ended up in Scotland, among other places, the very interesting stories he covered, and the lessons he's learned along the way that he wants to share with us today. So, let's first start out with introductions. I want to welcome Holly Spangler. Hey, Holly, how's it going? Hey, Kelsey. Yes, uh, my name is Holly Spangler. I'm editor at Prairie Farmer Magazine and an executive editor at Farm Progress Publications, and we're just looking forward to today. Awesome. And yes, it's our 10th episode, so maybe throw some confetti balloons in the air. Um, I, <laughs> we made 10. Yeah. yeah, we made it to 10, and I'm so excited for what 2019 is going to bring for this podcast. But before we get too ahead of ourselves, um, Steve, do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little background about you? Sure. So my name's Steve Werblow. I'm a freelancer out of Southern Oregon, Ashland, Oregon, and um, I do writing and photography. Uh, I work for the Furrow and Homestead magazines, uh, the Conservation Technology Information Center, and some uh, uh, other companies that are involved either in agriculture or in the water space. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a really fun opportunity, and there's always something to learn. Nice. Awesome. Fantastic. Steve, I was just thinking how, you know, Certainly in AAEA circles, you're well known, you know, as a freelance writer and um, based in Oregon and all those kinds of things, but you spent some time overseas, which I found fascinating. (laughs) I guess, could you share a little bit, you know, what possessed you (laughs) to move your family overseas and work there? Where, where, Where did that come from? That, it actually came from college. So my first semester freshman year, uh, a a friend that I'm still really close to was telling a story about how his uh, parents, his dad was a school teacher, uh, and his parents decided they would do a sabbatical year and take the whole family, all five kids, off to France for a year. And uh, so when my buddy Bob was about eight, he lived in France and learned French and played on the schoolyard, you know, just uh, with all the other kids. And I just thought that was about the coolest thing ever. And so uh, back when my wife and I were dating, you know, in college, we talked about that idea, you know, oh, if we stay together and if we get married and if we have, what a cool thing that would be. So it, it's been on the radar for, or it had been on the radar for decades and uh we ended up staying together getting married having kids and we thought (laughs) you know what this is the time and uh we we joked about it because um i wanted to go somewhere where there would be a language barrier we'd be forced to learn italian or german or dutch or something um Anna always wanted to go to Scotland. She's always been fascinated with Scotland. Um, and the kids wanted to go somewhere where they could go to local schools, but do well. So they, they really kind of leaned towards English. So we laughed. We, we went to uh, Glasgow, Scotland, where the local language is English, and there's still a language barrier because yeah. the accent is impossible. 
<laughs> That's just what I was thinking. You talk to a Scottish farmer very long and you're like, wait, wait, wait what? What was that? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So at what point, how long ago has it been? Like when, when did you go over? How long were you there? How old were your kids? Yeah, so we, we went over in the uh, summer of 2013. So our son was 11 and our daughter was 15 at the time. And so what we did was uh, we, we started, we took the opportunity to travel. So we started in Italy and kind of worked our way up um, to Sweden and then jumped over to the UK. And uh, because we live in a, a, a wired or wireless world, uh, both Anna and I were able to work from the field or from the road. So um, we were able to, I was able to file stories and stay in touch with clients and uh, do all that I needed to do. And Anna was able to help her organization through their audit and uh, all of the things that she as, a, as an accountant needed to do. So it was, it was, there was a lot of technology happening and we got really, really good at trying to pick hotels based on their wireless uh, capabilities. Absolutely. That was awesome. going to be my next question is, how did you cultivate those relationships back in the U.S. while you were overseas? Phones and computers help, but nothing's like that face-to-face -face conversation. Well, one of the things that really helped a lot was that I, that I was working on, based on really long relationships. So... Uh, you know, I've been with the furrow for a long time with Alliance Tire, had been working with them for a long time. So um, uh, people knew me, we, we didn't have to, you know, build the trust, the trust was already there. Um, I had one, uh, one client at, um, uh, well, Gibson Cell, I guess they're now GS uh, Communications. Um, but she, she said, Oh, no, we just call you Sasquatch, because you're out there in the Northwest somewhere, you're kind of hairy, and nobody actually ever sees you. So, <laughs> uh, so the idea of working long distance was, um, uh, wasn't that wasn't that difficult for me or the clients in the in the in the conceptual sense. Mm -hmm. And uh, the editor of the furrow, Dave Jones, um, he had said, hey, look, as long as you can file your stories, uh, I don't care where you are. In fact, it may be to our advantage to have you overseas and you could give us another another angle on things. So um, it was great to it was great to have that opportunity. I did come back to the States twice, once for a furrow editorial meeting, which is a you know our great face-to-face -face opportunity every year. Uh, and then once to to um, shoot some stories that needed to be done at that particular time of year. Mm -hmm. That's just what I was going to ask, Steve. I'm picturing you um, on a flurry of farm visits before you left to bank up all your photos. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it was because I, I made this promise that I wasn't going to uh, wasn't going to let my absence interfere with the the promises I had made in terms of, you know, making stories. So what I did was stockpiled uh, a bunch of uh, photos and interviews so that I could work off of those when I was overseas. What ended up happening was it was kind of handy to be over there because it gave me a chance to launch out to do some, uh, you know, uh, European stories and, and basically take advantage of the fact that I was, you know, once you're, once you're in Europe, uh, it's actually pretty cheap to move around. Mm -hmm. So from Glasgow, I did a story that I'd actually had in my sort of idea file for years and years about uh, French cowboys. And there's this whole cowboy culture in Southern France. And it had just been kind of nagging at me that this would be an awesome article. Well, once I was in Glasgow, I realized that it cost me less to go to uh, Arles, France 
uh, from Glasgow than it did to go to Idaho from, from Oregon. So it became really, really reasonable <laughs> to go out and bring something very different back for, for our readers. That's fantastic. Uh, the advantage you had working overseas brought new perspective to your career. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, it, one of the things that made Anna and I so excited about the opportunity to go overseas was it gave us a chance to look at the world and our kids, a chance to look at the world and to look at the United States from, from outside. And, and it's really fascinating to see how the U.S. was covered in the Scottish paper, you know, the, the, the British papers, the European papers, and to hear what people ask you. Um, you know, the, the kinds of questions people ask, the things that they're aware of um, in terms of U.S. policy, U.S. history, uh, social issues, et cetera, and so forth. So those aspects of it were really fascinating, and that extended into agriculture as well. So I did basically the same things I would do at home. So I went to extension meetings, and I went to meetings of, you know, uh, agricultural groups. I got involved with the, the uh, actually the the year after we were there, the British Guild of Agricultural Journalists was hosting the International Federation of Ag Journalists uh, uh, World Congress, which Holly, I know you were at. So I joined the planning committee. I figured, heck, we you know planned one in America. I can plan one here too. You know, it'll just be another set of hands. So um, that was a great way to uh, to get out and talk with other ag journalists and and just see more of the country and learn more about it. Um, so again, you know, going out there and, and being part of the, or, or sitting in on these uh, extension meetings, you know, people hear my accent and they would start talking. And that was neat, you know, because it makes you different and it makes people want to share. Um, they want to hear about America, but they also want to share what they're doing. So that was cool. And then again, taking that wider and wider, there were some things in Denmark, uh, there was some really cool technology uh, some farmers had been taking milking robots and putting them in shipping containers and moving the robots around the farm, um, which allowed them to do uh, pasture raised uh, or, you know, pasture grazed dairying with robots without having to make the cows walk back and forth a couple kilometers each way all day long. Um, so stuff like that, it became extremely feasible. Um, to, to, to go out and pick up those stories and send them home to, uh, to the states where, you know, uh, readers can get good ideas. I mean, America does amazing things agriculturally. American farmers are, are amazingly innovative. Uh, but there are a lot of good ideas that uh, are happening elsewhere that uh, we just haven't seen yet. So it was mm -hmm. nice to be able to bring those whether they were technologies, things like the, you know, the, the containerized robots or cultural things like the cowboy culture in, in Arl or, you know, um, sure. uh, issues of transitions, um, you know, uh, and, and, and government programs and creative marketing and care farms. I did one on a couple that was trying to make their um, small farm in Southern England viable economically, which is something that a lot of farmers face. And what they lit into was um, uh, care farms where people who were developmentally disabled could come out and, uh, and, and participate in the chores and work with the animals. And it was therapeutic. Um, so the couple loved it because they both came from education backgrounds and the um, clients adored it. And it also created an income stream for the farm. So I thought, well, that may be something that, uh, that could work in the States. 
Steve, I remember when Christy Lee and I went to IFAJ for the first time in Sweden in 2012. That was in like early August of 2012. Of course, there's a drought going on here. And, you know, we've flown all night. We get in a taxi cab in Stockholm to try and get to this hotel that we don't know anything about. And um, our taxi driver, I think he was from Turkey, starts talking to us about the U.S. and, um, you know, the drought and how we're going to take all this, you know, putting putting all our food into fuel and there's going to be a food shortage because of, you know, U.S. farm policy. And uh, we're both sitting there going, wait, what? Like... <laughs> You know, my first thought was like, how do you know all that stuff? And it was such an eye opener that they're paying so much attention to what we do and, and how we do it. And we obviously didn't argue with him because, you know, we felt like our lives were in his hands at that point. <laughs> <laughs> didn't know anything. But I, I was just curious, you know, what did you learn about perceptions, you know, about U.S. agriculture over there? Um, that's an interesting one. Uh it varied. I think people look up to the states in terms of um, innovation and, and, and willingness to accept, you know, and, and embrace technology. Um, I think there's sometimes a perception that, uh, you know, American farming is all huge and all corporate uh, and all, you know, right down to right down to the tiny margins. Um, I think I think it's seen as uh, you know, very much the business, whereas in, um, in Europe, there, it's, there's, a, there's a cultural component to it that, uh, that Europeans value and pay for quite a lot. Um, and so they see a difference in that. They, they, um, they recognize sort of cowboy culture, farmer culture in America, but they, they see us as um, big business type farming. Um, and, and you can see why, you know, if you go to a place like Austria or, um, uh, Switzerland where an economic unit of cows might be 20 or 25 cows, 40 cows, um, that's considered, you know, a totally working, you know, workable dairy. And so they look at, um, they look at 400 cows in, in Wisconsin, or they look at, you know, 2000 cows in, in Tulare County, California, and it, it kind of blows their mind. Um, it's, it's big numbers. They can't imagine how you could do that well. Um, and so they, they admire that. Uh, but they also, they also see it as, as very different from the kind of agriculture that they practice. Sure. Um, the flip side of it is in, in a country like Austria, um, half or more of, of a lot of those farmers' incomes um, is government, uh, government check in some right. manner or another. And, um, and it's not just a subsidy, you know, like a price subsidy, for instance. It's, in fact, those are, as we know, those aren't legal. So what they've done is they've, they've looked at, and this was, this was a real learning for me. Um, in Europe, what they do is they'll take a look at all of the other elements that farmers contribute to the country or to their region. And they say, you know what? It's important to us that farmers keep, keep the land in vegetation and they uh, protect the water quality by, by keeping pastures in good shape. And they enhance our sense of being Austrian or Swiss. You know, they, uh, they make it attractive for tourists. They're part of our cultural heritage. 
uh, those farmhouses and those buildings um, have been there for four, six hundred years. You know, we want to we want to preserve that, and we as a society are willing to pay for that. And that's a big difference from here. And they and they know it. They see it as very different. Um, they see us as as very business driven, um, whereas they look at themselves as part of not just the business of farming, but also the culture of agriculture in their in their countries. Did you get any interesting questions about U.S. agriculture? That is an interesting question. You know, honestly, I don't know if I can remember any specifics. Uh, I'd, I'd have to think that through, but I think a lot of it, it had to do with, with the scale, you know, the, yeah. the scale of agriculture. Trade was going pretty well. You know, we weren't in the throes of any big trade negotiations because that would be another, another big issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most of the questions uh, dealt primarily with either scale or or government programs. Again, government programs are so vital in in Europe that um, uh, it's it's a big part of what they talk about all the time because it's a big part of their survival. Sure, Steve. What kind of things did you learn about yourself and your work habits while you were there? I learned that I, I could adjust my sleep patterns to match because uh, you know we were we were on a uh, an eight hour time difference from home so uh, and uh, five hours from the east coast so you know you, you learn to be flexible you learn to work quietly when everybody else is sleeping I, I you know interestingly I probably learned more about work life balance than anything because. Mm-hmm. While we were there, it was really nice to walk to school with the kids. And, you know, the mm-hmm. school, school was better than a mile away. You know, being in this city, we were, we were on foot all the time and we didn't have a car. So um, it, was, it was nice to, you know, get up and walk the kids to school and, and, and then walk home and just observe, you know, just kind of be part of the neighborhood and see the neighborhood happening. Um, and then go back and get them at, because it was inevitably dark. I mean, you're so far north in Glasgow yeah. that, uh, you know, we were, it's up around, it's up around Juneau, you know, almost in terms of uh, latitude. It's a lot farther north than, than you'd think. And so the days were, you know, like 20 minutes long. And uh, so, you know, you're going to school in the dark, coming home in the dark. So it was kind of nice to, uh, to go and pick them up and, mm-hmm. and you know, walk home and, and watch, you know, watch the seasons change. So, that's, those are luxuries that I don't often give myself at home because, uh, you know, it's work with work and you really get cranking on, on this project and that project. and You have a call at 6 a.m. and a call at 7 and whatever. So it, it, that was probably the big learning was, was mm-hmm. to, to take that moment, even though then my billable hours went down in the course of that year. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was a nice trade-off. Steve, one of the things I think about while you talk about your trip is the luxury of that we can work from anywhere. I'm on my laptop right now and I always have my phone on me and my iPad and I can go work at Starbucks if I want to. And I think specifically with leaning towards my generation there, we want to be able to work from anywhere. And I see, I do see a big trend of young professionals, that's a big thing when they're looking at a job. Well, is it remotely? Because then I can kind of go about as I please work along the way. Um, I know a friend who just recently went to Canada and she spent two weeks up there and she was able to work from there remotely because her job is remote. What is your message to those people that are thinking they want to work remotely and 
they can travel and do that at the same time. I, I, I think it's, it's infinitely possible. And, and I mean, I've done all of those things you've described. I've worked in coffee houses. I've worked on trains. I've worked in India, you know, on, on, on the side of the road. You know, there is no place you can't go do your job, especially if you do what we do, you know. And, and I think it can enhance your ability to, to do your job because it, it, it puts you in those situations if you're, if you're taking it from the journalist side or from the public relations side and you need to understand what your customers and your end users are doing. It puts you there and it, it gives you a sense of what's going on. Um, and and in, in cases of technology, it's actually just interesting. In a way, you're test driving their technology. And so you start to recognize, um, hey, you know, and, and you can say this about, about, it doesn't have to be international. I mean, you go to parts of uh, parts of the Midwest and you go, my gosh, why can't I get a decent signal? This is, this has huge implications for the people who live here. Yeah, it matters. Um, or you go to, like I said, India and you say, wait a minute, I've actually got connectivity here. I'm going to Zambia and I can see people getting their, their government subsidies on prepaid credit cards so that they can go off and make telephone transactions from the bush in Zambia and buy their fertilizer and buy their seed. And you think, wow, that's, you know, I'm right there in it and, 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 and you get that context. So those aspects are really cool. Um, the flip side is, and, and bosses don't always get this, it's not a vacation, it's harder to work remotely. <laughs> um, you, have to, you have to think about things like connectivity, like access to power, like, um, making sure you've got enough SD cards in your cam, you know, to keep your camera filled. Um, you need process. You need to know, like, for instance, when I'm out shooting and it doesn't matter whether I'm in, you know, the, the Willamette Valley of Oregon or I'm in, uh, you know, Zambia, every night I go back to the room or wherever I'm staying and I uh, download all of my pictures and then I play them off on a, a, a auxiliary hard drive just in case because, um, you know, laptops die. Don't ask me why I know that. You need process. And it's not as easy when you're on the road because you're in new places and because you're tired and because you're jet lagged and uh, you're cranky and you might not feel good because of what you ate or whatever it is. So that's, that's a big commitment. And the other aspect of it is the motivation. You have to get up and do it. Even if you want to go look at something or even if you don't feel great or even if you, um, even if you just can't seem to find how you're going to get the energy to do it. You have to get up and go do your job. And, um, and that is a commitment. You really have to be disciplined. Mm -hmm. And, um, but if you can do those things, there is no place you can't work and, and that you can't benefit from, from the experience of doing that and, and hopefully bring it home for your audiences or your, you know, your firm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Steve, you mentioned process, which I'm sitting here thinking that's, something I need to work on, that idea of, you know, you do the same thing at either at the end of the day or the end of the shoot or the end of whatever. And that just makes me think like, how did, how did some of your international experience change the way you approach your work back home? I mean, have you carried over a lot of that? Did it change some of your processes? That's an interesting question. I, I probably hadn't changed much um, only because most of those processes had existed in my sort of world for, for so long. I mean, you know, I travel a lot domestically. So the idea of being in a hotel room wasn't any, you know, it's not substantially different if you're in a hotel room in, you know, 
uh, Glastonbury, England, or if you're in a hotel room in, you know, Glastonbury, Vermont, you know, it's, it's a hotel and you, you have your processes. I mean, my kids know never pick up dad's shoes at the hotel. And that's because I stuff everything in my pockets into my shoes at night um, because then I always know where they are. I'm never looking for my keys or my phone because they're always yeah. in my shoe. Um, do not ever pick up dad's shoes because stuff's going to come flying out. Um, and that, you know, so processes like that are, are consistent. And that process of, of, say, downloading photographs. I mean, I've been doing that since, since we started in with uh, digital, you know, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago. So I, I don't know that the processes changed, but it, it, it certainly underscores the value of them when you, mm-hmm. you know, um, and especially like when we were on the move, you know, for that first, for that first summer, um, you, you just know you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to cross borders. You're going to be on a train. If you left something behind, it is gone, gone, gone. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you just, you just realize how important it is to have that process and keep things moving. Well, Steve, I'm thinking for us freelancers out there, what other advice do you have specifically for freelancers that work in the ag community or just maybe just in general? What's your best piece of advice to them? Well, let's let's look at it from the perspective of freelancing and travel, because the irony is freelancers are actually the best positioned to go off on these kinds of adventures and to take these these opportunities to travel, to broaden their perspective to differentiate themselves by where they are, what they know. Um, and so if you're a freelancer and you, you have even half of an inkling that it might be cool to, to go travel and go find uh, a new adventure, recognize that that's actually, you know, you're, you're in a really great position for it. So think in terms of who of your, you know, which of your clients or which of your prospective clients that you'd really like to connect with might benefit from where you're going. Um, can you cobble together a couple of projects that don't compete with each other? Because obviously you don't want to sell the same story two or three times. It's not ethical. And, and you know, it's, um, that's kind of a one-way, a one-way trip. Um, but if you've got a couple of different things you can do in Timbuktu, um, Think about how you might be able to cobble that together and do it in a way that can save your clients some money. I mean, when I um, when I went to India years ago, um, in fact, I think it was the year before the the, the move to Scotland. Um, I did that on behalf of two clients, and it allowed me to defray some of the costs of travel, you know, and, and prorate that among a couple of clients and bring home really different and interesting stuff and build my collection of photos, you know, so now there's lots of India pictures, um, which are pretty scarce, you know, here in the States. And what I found was that both sides, uh, both halves of that trip contributed to the other half. So when I was down in the Southern part of India, looking at a factory, I ended up with images that worked really well for the story that I had mostly shot in the Northern part of India, but it, it, rounded out the coverage. Um, and consequently, the interviews I was doing in the northern half helped me understand what I was seeing in the south and ask different questions at the factory, you know, on, on more of an industrial level. So as a freelancer, look for those synergies, um, look for opportunities that may allow you to get where you're going and then, you know, uh, make a living while you're there. Um, you do need to be careful. Um, about the rules of where you're operating. 
Um, for instance, and, and I'll bring up India again, um, uh, because, because that one is particularly strict, but if you are a journalist, um, or you even smell a little bit like a journalist, you must get a journalist visa to go to India. And it doesn't matter if you're going for your cousin's wedding, uh, or just to go see the Taj Mahal, or you're going to work, you must go in as a journalist. And that's really important to know. And what we don't, recognized necessarily as Americans because we can travel our whole country um, and and never run into a border but when you're when you're going overseas it's really important to know what's appropriate um, and what's legal and what's um, what's mandated when we went to Scotland it was very important for us to get, get visas that allowed me to work um, and that's not as easy as it sounds mm-hmm. um, and at the time that we were applying for visas uh, the UK was busy trying to close as many avenues into its borders as it could. They had gotten an influx of uh, uh, immigrants from Eastern Europe as part of their um, uh, involvement in the EU, and they were busy. So a lot of the categories that would have really applied to me as a self-employed person were the categories that people came in um, from other countries, other EU countries in the East. And the British were trying to close all those windows that they could. So what may have been easy five or six years before was all of a sudden very, very close. So my wife ended up um, enrolling in a master's degree and getting her master's while we were there. And we went in under her student visa. We were dependents uh, of hers. But what was important was that, that that allowed us to work. So it allowed us national health care, allowed the kids to enroll in school. Um, and it allowed, it allowed me to work. If I had not had that visa and had just gone in as a Schengen visitor, right? We have this agreement through the Schengen Accords, um, which allow Americans to go to Europe, um, and to Britain and, and, and Scandinavia, the, the, the EU countries, um, and visit for six months. It's, it's really easy. Um, however, you are not allowed to work. And if you are found working in the UK under one of those tourist visas, out you go and you're gone for 10 years. You are, you are barred from, and, and I, I would even venture to guess that you couldn't even transit through Heathrow on your way to somewhere else um, in that 10 year period. I mean, it is, that door is shut. So you can't mess around with stuff like that. You need to know what the rules are and you need to be above board on it. Um, it's just not something you want to run counter to. But that said, you know, do your homework and, and figure out what you can do and then go do it. It's, uh, it's, it's a really neat opportunity. Yep, that's what I'm gathering from this is people do your homework because this is, we're talking about international and now being in the USA more where you can just hop, skip and jump all over the place and do your work. You've got to make sure to, that you're being completely legal while doing it. So thanks for sharing that. That's very important information. You, you bet. You bet. Steve, I'm sitting here thinking about it. You know, you've interviewed farmers in India. You've interviewed farmers in Europe and Scotland and all these places, obviously American farmers. What, what do you see are some of the things that are this, the same and yet different? I mean, is a farmer, is a farmer, is a farmer or no? There's, it's, it's amazing how common the farm experience is. And it could be, you know, you've got half an acre in India, or you've got, you've got, you know, 2000 acres in Illinois, or you've got, uh, 
you know, uh, 400 acres in the hills of Scotland. You know, the fundamentals, in fact, uh, and this is, this goes not to Scotland, but to Thailand. Um, a buddy of mine and I went on a trip to Thailand when we turned 50. It was just, um, it was just one of those adventures. Neither one of our wives ever really cared to go to Thailand. So we thought, what a perfect trip, because then, you know, uh, they're not sad, jealous, and we get to go see some adventures and eat some food. I had arranged a trip up into the mountains where we went up into this um, this uh, village of uh, Karen people, which are, uh, it's an ethnic group that comes in from um, uh, Burma or Myanmar. It was just, it was just a hike in the woods, you know, it was um, uh, us and this couple and their kids and a guide. And we're up in the mountains and um, I mean, we're just doing it for vacation, but I totally geeked out because we came to a clearing and it was all chopped down. And the guide said, last week, this was all standing forest. I said, what are they doing? He said, well, they're going to burn all the trees and they're going to plant rice. And I just absolutely geeked out. I said, this is, this is slash and burn agriculture. This is, this is, we just stepped back 6,000 years in agricultural history. So I shot the whole thing as a story. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to bring this home. And uh, so I interviewed all the farmers. We're sitting there drinking rice wine that night, you know, up in the uh, uh, headmaster's hut and um, hanging out. And so what are they talking about? Drought. Okay, the, we, the river that we crossed used to be a lake and now it was a river because they'd had three years of it just enduring drought. So they were sitting there trying to figure out what they're going to do with their cattle. Um, you know, how many do you hold? How many do you sell? What are they worth? We talked about regulation because they burn the forests, right? And, uh, and, and they've been doing it for, you know, at least hundreds of years, that particular ethnic group. Um, but now that's kind of fallen out of favor. So they're, they're uh, in violation of smoke and air quality regulations. And most of them are going to go to jail, at least for a while. Um, but they said, well, at least, you know, at least we'll have rice. So when we come out, we'll harvest it. Um, so drought regulation and prices. Um, it was like, it, you could have been in Iowa other than the fact that they were speaking Karen. Um, but uh, it, it was, it was a really neat opportunity to go, Oh my gosh, you know, there is such a, a similarity um, but looking, looking beyond that, uh, it's, it's interesting to see the differences in terms of how people, how farmers in different places approach innovation, uh, or don't, um, most of them tend to be just really creative and really dedicated to their animals, to their crops, to their families, to the place they live, to the land that they farm, um, where the differences exist, it tends to be things like who owns the land. And um, so if you don't have land tenure, you may be a farmer, but you're going to be restricted in terms of what you can do on that ground or whether you even have access ever to capital to improve the way you farm. So you may want technology, but you can't afford it. Um, so if you have a, a system where credit is not available because either the banks won't loan or you don't have any collateral, that's a big difference. And, and that you immediately recognize and it, it, it kind of makes your heart go out to these guys and, and women. Um, the other thing is, that, yeah, the, the number of women farmers. Uh, in many cultures, farming is, is a women's activity and, uh, and an, a female enterprise. Um, what's interesting is when you see the dislocation between aid programs and training programs that are geared towards men in countries where the women are actually doing the farming, 
that's really that that's fascinating and that's when you start to realize that the world is 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 more complicated than you thought um and that what what makes sense when you write it on the back of an envelope actually in the field has these other ramifications but it is it is really interesting when you when you look at that and then you get on the ground and you talk to people who do that for for a living all day long um and and deal with these kinds of things and you go oh my gosh that is complicated steve is there with all this information from your trips that you've done are you planning any other trips in the future oh there's always somewhere cool to go <laughs> i don't have anything specific on the docket other than to go see our daughter our daughter's studying overseas right now so we're going to go see her through christmas time and new year's so uh, that that is pure fun um although if a story falls out of the sky i would you know like I said, in, in Thailand, just going out and geeking out over something you don't expect to see. Uh, but that's a, that's a great part of the job. I mean, especially if you're a freelancer uh, or a journalist, uh, is, is, is finding things where you are um, and realizing that, that there is something you could go home and share with, with your readers uh, or your audience. And uh, so who knows? But uh, yeah, there are a lot of places I'd like to go, but I, I don't have anything specific yet. Steve, I was just thinking how I've, I've joked before, like I would listen to you tell me how to butter toast. So I'm curious, like what, what are you reading right now? What are you listening to? Any podcasts, any, any books that are particularly engaging? Oh, that's um, my son. I don't get to listen to a lot of podcasts because I don't commute. I save them up and on these long, these long driving trips, um, I'll, I'll just stack them up. Uh, so my son got me into uh, Dan Snow's History Hit which I just really enjoy. Those are, those are fascinating. Uh, and he's a, he's a great interviewer. 99% um, Invisible um, with Roman Mars. He's, um, he, again, is great. And he's got this voice that's just outstanding. You can just listen to him all day. But he's, he's got such a cool angle on, uh, on things that you wouldn't know about. You know, that the story behind the story or the design behind it, uh, of some sort of, device or feature or whatever. Uh, so those two, those two podcasts are great. I don't get to, I don't get to listen to a lot. I just, I did an interview for John Deere's podcast. And so that now I'm on the, the other end of that, um, at least marginally. And that it makes me appreciate podcasters even more. So hats off to you, Holly. Um, <laughs> and, and, and to you too, Kelsey, you, you've been, you've been driving this one too. You know, the podcast, I, even like just two years ago, you couldn't pay me a hundred bucks to listen to a podcast. I'm like, oh, I don't have the time. And they've just gotten so popular that I'm constantly listening. To, I, I'm a music lover. I listen to podcasts more than music, but that's how I'm continuing my education outside of school. I'm listening to podcasts, getting a new perspective on things, learning about new things. Like I can't tell you how many things I just learned just sitting right here listening. So Thank you, Steve, for hopping on with us and giving us your perspective of your international work experience. I know a lot of these listeners are going to gain valuable information if they've ever want to not only travel abroad, but work abroad. There's a, there's a lot to learn for that. And so thank you for hopping on with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Kelsey and Holly. It's just, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you. 
There you have it, everyone, our 10th episode in the books. Thanks to Steve and Holly for taking time out of their busy schedules to come on the AgCom Network podcast today. Be sure to follow the AAEA AgCom Network Facebook page as we will be uploading new episodes of the podcast in 2019. If you have any suggestions or recommendations about guests or topics, please let us know. Shoot us a message on Facebook or shoot the gals over in the AAEA office a message. Um, This is a free resource to you that we want to make sure that it applies to what you want to know. Um, Any topics or guests, let us know what you want to hear on this podcast and we will certainly do so. Thanks everyone and stay tuned for our next episode. This is Kelsey Litchfield on the AgCom Network podcast. This has been an Ag Communicators Network podcast. Thanks for listening. And please visit us online at agcomnetwork.com for more great content.